Uh, well, my, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is John Randall. I'm one of the guys here on staff. If you've got your Bibles or your phones, open them up to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. we got some work to do tonight. Galatians chapter 3. Well, in the 1980s, uh, there was this magical TV show for kids called Reading Rainbow. Anybody ever heard of Reading Rainbow, right? It's in a book, just take a look. It's... All right, I got one person who still wants to sing. Uh, it's Reading Rainbow, right? Uh, Reading Rainbow was this time where the, the, the great LeVar Burton would come on and he would capture kids' imaginations by reading a story uh, to encourage them to read on their own. This is Parker Anderson's favorite TV show. He's constantly telling me that this is where he got his desire to read. He told me he's read through the Bible like three times this year. Um, it's amazing. So you should talk to him afterwards and ask him to show him your library. Uh, he loves to read. Just kidding. I love you, Parker. Um, I always thought it was ironic, though, that Reading Rainbow was a TV show that was trying to teach kids that reading was better. Like, did they never catch the irony of that? You guys get it, right? It's a TV show that's trying to teach kids. Anyways, uh, the, the end of that show had this classic catchphrase, this classic catchphrase that said this, but you don't have to take my word for it, right? He'd get to the end and he'd be like, don't take my word for it. And then he would talk and recommend these other books. Don't take my word for it. This is exactly what Paul is going to do in this text that we're going to read tonight. In chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians, Paul is making only one argument. He's essentially making one argument, and it's this. You become a Christian by faith, and you continue the Christian life by faith. You become a Christian by faith, and you live out the Christian life by faith. And then it's as though as Paul jumps into it and he says, Hey, don't take my word for it. Like, don't just take my argument at face value. Let's actually dive into the Bible. Let's get into the Old Testament. Don't take my word for it. Let's read the Bible and see what it has to say. Because Paul's going to show us tonight that the Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible teaches us that our relationship with God has always been about faith. See, if you remember in the church in Galatia, there were these false teachers that had come into the church and they were saying something like this. Hey, yeah, Jesus is good enough to save you from your sins. But if you really want to be accepted by God, if you really want to be a true Christian, then you need to follow the law. And the church in Galatia had actually gone along with this teaching and they began to think things like this. Well, Jesus is good enough to save me from the penalty of sin over my life. But Jesus is not good enough to save me from the presence and the power of sin in my life right now. Or to put it another way, they would say, yeah, the Holy Spirit is good enough and he's strong enough and he's powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. I believe that. But somehow the Holy Spirit's power is lacking in making me look more and more like Jesus and making me look holy. And Paul, he's coming into the middle of this. And he is pulling out his hair, feeling like he's going crazy because he's like, you idiots. That's literally how he begins Galatians chapter 3. You morons, do you not realize that the same Holy Spirit who rose Jesus Christ from the dead actually lives in you? That's what Erica was talking about in the call to worship. He actually lives in you. 
And his power isn't just good enough to save you from your sins. His power can actually transform your entire life. Paul's saying, hey, faith is not one of this thing that you did with a checkbox at Galatia Bible Camp. Faith is not like this deed that you just check and then you stick in your back pocket until you go to heaven. No, faith is something that you continue throughout the entire Christian life. Faith is actually like a muscle that you work out. Why would you believe that Jesus could save you from your sins and then turn to something else believing that that's going to make you actually look more like Jesus? That that's what's going to actually allow you to live the Christian life? Why would you turn to yourself and your own efforts to live the Christian life? Again, if the Christian life begins with faith, why wouldn't it continue by faith? That's Paul's argument in Galatians 3 and 4. But in verse 6 of chapter 3, which is where we're going to start reading tonight... Paul begins to provide evidence for his argument. Again, he's saying, don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at the Old Testament. Since these false teachers came into Galatia and brought up the Old Testament and said, hey, you need to follow this to be a true Christian. Let's actually go into the Old Testament and see what it really says. Paul's going to say, I'm going to show you that the Old Testament shows us that the whole life, the whole life that we live for God, the whole relationship that we have with God is all about faith. Well, before we get there, I really want to make sure that we're all on the same page with this because I don't think Paul is just kicking the tires and saying, Hey, let me give you a history lesson on your Bible. I think Paul's trying to nail down what is faith and why is faith so important. See, see, faith isn't just this intellectual thing where, Hey, I agree that there's a God. Like, I acknowledge that there's a God up in heaven, right? That, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is saying, I trust in this God. I'm willing to reorient my entire life around Jesus in the gospel. I'm willing to stake and leverage everything on it. It's not just believing there is a God. It's believing in that God. It's trusting in God. And it's trusting in his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what biblical faith is. See, there's a big difference between saying, hey, I'm intellectually, I'm reasoning in my mind. I agree that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead. I agree with those facts. We're good, right? There's a difference between that and saying, no, I believe that Jesus, the one that died 2,000 years ago, actually lives inside me right now and is actually changing me so that I can live a life that is glorifying to him. What is faith? Faith is believing that Jesus is enough for you. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, maybe you've picked up the Bible and you said, okay, I tried to read this thing and it just seems like this book is just a bunch of rules for my life. It seems like this is one option among many to live a moral lifestyle, to self-improve myself. And in fact, when I start digging into the scriptures, it seems like there's two gods. There's a God of the Old Testament who seems like a kid with a magnifying glass who's going to be burning ants. And anytime I mess up on his rules, he's going to smite me. And then hippie Jesus comes along in the New Testament. He says everybody needs to love each other. And I'm confused. I don't understand what is the purpose of the Bible. Today I want to, sir, tonight I want to submit to you that the Bible isn't a book of rules for your self-improvement. The Bible is actually one story of one God who literally, since from Genesis all the way to Revelation, 
is telling this story. I am desperate to get back into a relationship with my creation. And I've provided a way through my son, Jesus Christ. Tonight, I want to ask, would you dare to believe that this God wants to have a relationship with you? Would you dare to believe that that relationship isn't just a ticket into heaven, that that relationship actually can fundamentally transform you from the inside out? If you're a Christian here tonight, maybe you've read the Bible thinking, okay, John, I get this. Like, there's a story in there that talks about Jesus dying from the or uh, dying for my sins, I trusted in that and going to heaven. But that's just one story in the scriptures. When it comes to actually living for God, when it comes to actually living for the Christian life, I need to go to the Old Testament or the New Testament, and I need to look at guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and uh, Isaiah and the prophets and Moses and David and Paul and John and all, Peter and all these guys, and I need to emulate my life after them. I need to uh, live by their examples, and that's what really will make God happy. To you tonight, I want to ask this question. Is that kind of lifestyle leading to you trusting God more and more? Or is that lifestyle leading to you trusting yourself more and more? Because here's the reality. So often I come to the Bible as a Christian and I'm reading it thinking, oh, the more I know about God, the better I will be at following him. Guys, that doesn't work. The reason we read the Bible is so that we know more about God, so that we trust him more, that we realize that his power is sufficient to actually change us so that we can follow him more. Do you see the difference? City Light, you, God has been telling one story since he spoke the world into existence. And it's a story about how he wants to reunite creation to himself through the work of Jesus. The question is, is do we have faith in that? Are we staking our lives upon that? Well, like Paul, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to actually see this in your Bibles. I want us to see this starting in Genesis, all the way into the New Testament, that this relationship with God begins, continues, and ends all on faith. So hopefully you're there. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start actually in verse 5. This will be up on the screen. Would you stand to your feet? As we read God's word here tonight. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. You can go ahead and have a seat. 
tonight, I just have three points. I want to show us, and I believe Paul is showing us that, again, the Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible teaches us that the Christian life begins by faith and it continues by faith. So the first point that I have here tonight is this. The blessing of Abraham comes by faith. The blessing of Abraham comes by faith. In verse 5, Paul actually asks a rhetorical question. In fact, the first five verses, if you notice the grammar in the first five verses of Galatians chapter 3, they're all questions. Paul is asking all rhetorical questions, and they all essentially ask this. Are you looking more and more like Jesus because of your ability to follow the law? Or are you looking more and more like Jesus because of your faith in the Holy Spirit to produce that in you? Which is it? And it's a rhetorical question because it's got an obvious answer. Of course it's the Holy Spirit. But then Paul throws in this bizarre transition statement. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's like, what? Where'd that come from? Uh, Paul just throws that in there out of the blue, it seems like. What's he talking about? Well, a little bit of setting to the, the, the book of Galatians. Remember, these false teachers came in and said, hey... It's good that you believe in Jesus because he does save us from our sins. But if you really want to be a Christian, you've got to follow the Old Testament law. Now, the law that these false teachers put on a pedestal and said, if you're going to follow any of the Old Testament law, you've got to follow this one. What's the law of circumcision? Now, that's a big deal for why Paul just brought up Abraham. Because the very first time we see the law of circumcision in the Bible is when we get introduced to the life of Abraham. Abraham is actually the very first Jewish person. And so Paul's like, okay, it's on. I'm a Pharisee. I'm I'm about as Jewish as you can get. You want to play it? I'll play. And he's saying, hey, let's actually go to the Old Testament. Let's see what it actually does say about Abraham. How did Abraham get a relationship with God? How did he grow in that relationship with God? See that? Paul actually jumps into Genesis 15. I want to read this. You can go there if you want to. Genesis 15, verses 3 through 6. Or you can write that down. Again, it's Genesis 15, 3 through 6. I want you to hear this. And if you want to look at it, you can. This is from your Old Testament. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, when God made this promise to Abraham that he's going to have a son, two things happened. Two major significant things happened. The first is that Abraham believed And God counted that to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in this promise that a son was going to come. And then through that faith, God credited to Abraham's account his own righteousness. Now, here's the thing. Abraham didn't get this promise because of how good or how bad he was. Abraham didn't earn this promise by his ability to follow the law. God just gave him the promise. Because God does that. He's got to give his promises. And Abraham just believed. He said, okay. In fact, I would argue that Abraham not only believed that God could deliver on this promise, but that throughout his life, Abraham continued to believe that God 
would deliver on this promise. Do you, you see that Abraham actually had faith, and that's how he, his, the relationship with God started? And he continued throughout his life having faith in God. Now, if you know your Bibles or you know the story of Abraham, it's really easy to look at his life and be like, bro, that guy had a messed up life. Like, this dude is messing up any, everywhere and anywhere. In fact, Abraham's faith is not perfect. The quality, the quantity of Abraham's faith goes up and down. But the quality or quantity of faith is not the condition for why God gave the promise. And it's not the condition for why Abraham has a relationship with God. The only way that Abraham can stand and be accepted by God is because of the righteousness that was given to him. It's not his faith that's perfect. It's the righteousness of God that's in him that is perfect. So here's the deal. Abraham, even though he's a messed up sinner, even though his faith wavers, even though he's not always following the law, God still accepts him based on the righteousness that's credited to him, not necessarily based on Abraham and his ability to follow God. Let me give you an example to flesh this out. Let's say you're a person who had bad credit. Let's say you're a person that's just bankrupt. Let's say you, man, you've maxed out credit cards uh, for thousands of dollars. You're not only bankrupt, you're in debt. You just have bad credit. And a guy named Elon Musk, who's, if you don't know that, he's the owner of Tesla and he's a billionaire. He's one of the richest men in the world. He comes up to you and he gives you a check and he writes down whatever number you want. Billions and billions of dollars on this check, right? And he hands it to you. And you go into a bank and you lay that down on the desk and you say, I want to open up a line of credit. Here's the check. Is there any bank in the world that's going to look at you and say, I'm not giving you a line of credit. Have you seen your record? Have you seen how bad your credit is? You're crazy. I'm not giving you a line of credit. No bank in the world is going to do that. Do you know why? Because they're not looking at your bad credit. They're looking at the credit of the rich millionaire, billionaire, who just gave you the check. It's the check that guarantees your line of credit, not your line of credit. Do you see how this works with us and Abraham. When Abraham began his relationship with God, it wasn't based on his record. It was based on God's faithfulness to keep his promises. All Abraham needed to do was believe and continue to believe. We too don't come into a relationship with God by our own record, but by believing in Christ's record. Our faith is the same as Abraham's. Author and pastor Tim Keller uh, says it this way. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Did you catch that? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. It wasn't the strength of Abraham's faith to believe the promise. It was Abraham, or it was the righteousness that was credited to Abraham that guaranteed God's promise. The second thing that happened was Abraham's and Sarah's physical bodies were actually given capacity to produce life. What I find fascinating about this story is not that God was faithful to his promise. You see that over and over in scripture, he's faithful to his promises. What I find fascinating about this story is what God actually specifically promises. God specifically promises in this section of Genesis 15, a son. Why a son? 
Out of all the things God could have promised to Abraham, why is it a child? I believe that we can understand this if we actually take a step out and look at the whole book of Genesis. So we meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But leading up to that is Genesis chapter 3 all the way through 11. Now in Genesis chapter 3 through 11, it shows what sin has done to this world. Adam and Eve have fallen out of the garden. They have rejected God and said they want to live their own way. And a curse fell on them and a curse fell on the land. Murder enters the world between Cain and Abel. Wickedness gets so bad on planet earth that God literally floods the earth because it's everywhere. The sexual immorality and the, the uh, neglect of the poor is so bad that God literally destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. The self-righteousness of the Tower of Babel uh, shows that we cannot get to God, and so God scatters them. And then you have a very interesting chapter in Genesis chapter 11, where you have a genealogy from Adam all the way to Abraham. And every single person in between, you'll see that their lives get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. What's God doing in writing Genesis 3 all the way to 11? He's showing that the result of sin is that death has entered the world. Sin is literally killing the human race. And so when chapter 12 comes along and Abraham is promised a son, he's promised life. Do you see how God's promise flies in the face of the narrative of Genesis? And, and it's not just that, like, it's like, hey, bro, like, this is some 20-year-old, and he's like, I'm going to give you a son. You just got married? I'm going to give you a son. No, Abraham is 75 years old, and he's sterile. Sarah has a barren womb, and she's beyond the, the years of childbearing, and God is breathing life back into what was dead. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, where sin has brought death, I'm going to bring life. Where people have brought wickedness, I'm going to create a new people that will, will reveal my goodness by the way that they live. Where the land has been cursed by sin, I am going to renew the land. I'm going to create a whole new land that my people are going to live on. And one day it's going to be a recreated Eden. A land flowing with milk and honey. You get the sense that this expansive kind of promise isn't just limited to Abraham. It's not just limited to his descendants who is Israel. It's for the whole world. That's what Genesis 3.8 is all about. The gospel was actually preached to Abraham because it was through a son of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ, that the whole world would be blessed. He is the one who represents the whole nation that comes from Abraham. Later in Genesis, we actually see that circumcision comes along, right? I'm coming back to that, right? Remember these false teachers coming into Galatia said, hey... Jesus is good. You got to get circumcised, though. Circumcision comes after Abraham, or, or after the promise made to Abraham for a son. It comes later. And really what it was done is it was set up as a sign that God's promise would come true. Now, here's a weird question, but I'm going to ask it. Have you ever wondered why God commanded circumcision? Like, let's just get real. Like, you get to that part, and especially if you're, like, new to your Bible and read Galatians, you're like... Why is this a big deal? Like, this is so weird. Why did God command circumcision? Here's why I think, and, and again, I'm taking some liberty in the text here. But here's why I think God commanded circumcision. And I don't mean to be crude, but I think God was literally having Abraham mark the sexual organ that brought life to show or point to the fact that God is the ultimate creator of life. Where there was death, God brought life. 
All of Abraham's descendants get circumcised to show that it is God who is faithful to keep this promise of life. Now, why did this is a long point. I realize that. I just gave you a ton of things about Abraham. Why did I do all that? I did all that to get to this. Let me ask you this question. Did Abraham ever think that circumcision is what really made a baby? Was Abraham ever thinking like, oh, I get it, God. You want me to get circumcised because that's going to help me produce a child. Did Abraham ever think that circumcision guaranteed that he would have a great nation? Oh, if I do this, then I, I, I will for sure have many, many, many descendants. Did Abraham ever believe that his own circumcision, like, oh, maybe if I do this, I'll actually increase the fact that God is going to be faithful to his promise, that he'll deliver on it. Did Abraham ever think that in the Old Testament? No. The answer is obvious. That's absolutely ludicrous. And that's Paul's point. Abraham came into a relationship with God because he believed a promise and continued to grow in his relationship with God because he strived to continue to believe that promise. Therefore, this is what Paul said in the Galatian church. Guys, circumcision didn't produce your new life in Christ. Why are you going to it expecting it to grow your new life in Christ? If it didn't have the power to produce life in the first place, why would you go to it thinking that it can somehow increase your new life in Christ? Now, how does this apply to us today? I, we don't run to circumcision thinking that that's going to somehow increase our faith and grow our relationship with God. But I, we do run to other things. Today, we might look to Jesus for the forgiveness of our lust, but then we'll try to overcome our addiction to pornography by our own willpower. We might look to, to Jesus to heal the, the hurtful words and the, the, the hurtful words that have been said to us and the hurtful words we've said to others, but then when it comes to actually healing the dysfunctional relationships that we have, we turn to the conflict resolution binders and the, the self-help books and the, and the conferences that help us with counseling. We look to Jesus to break down our pride, but then we look to our own hearts to figure out how to be humble. It's like, Jesus, thank you for your salvation, but now I'll take it from here. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'll come up and, and concoct these elaborate plans to live for you. And I don't need you to help me do that. I'll do this on my own. We ignore the Spirit's power, and we press into our own power. Now let me just ask, how's that, how's that going for you? Christian life begins by faith and it continues by faith. Paul's saying even Abraham knew that. Even Abraham showed us that. Paul then moves on to his second point. A curse comes by works of the law. This is my second point tonight. A curse comes by works of the law. See, God didn't just bless Abraham and say, here's the son, go live in a land, we'll be, we'll be good, I'll, I'll be your God and we're all awesome. No, he's saying, hey, I've blessed you with this son, with this great nation, so that they can be a blessing to the world. I'm going to give you my law, and you are going to live as my people. And if you follow this law, you'll show my goodness to the world, and you will reveal to them that I desperately want to have a relationship with the world. There's just one problem with this. Israel failed to keep the law. Israel failed to keep the law. And because they failed to keep the law, they fell under a curse. Now, it's not just them that fell into a curse. All of us in this room are in that boat as well. We've all fallen under this curse. Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 10 that anyone who relies on the works of the law is cursed. Anyone. Why? Because no one can keep the law. 
No one can actually fulfill the law. Even if you break the smallest piece of the law, you're a lawbreaker, right? How often do we say something like, well, I'm not really a liar. I lie sometimes, but I'm not really a liar. No, I hate to break it to you. If you lie sometimes, that makes you a liar, right? That makes you a liar. Jesus actually raises the stakes of this when he comes onto the stage because he says, hey, it's not just enough that your outward obedience actually follows the law. It matters that the motivation of your heart is also aligned with the law. So he says things like, hey, it's cool that you didn't commit adultery over here, but if you've ever lusted after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. So you're still a lawbreaker. Jesus raises the stakes. Now, you might want to say, well, wait a minute here. I'm not Jewish. I've never even really attended the church. I've never tried to follow the law. I've never tried to follow God's rules. Okay. I'll I'll, uh, uh, allow that argument. Um, But the the Bible doesn't necessarily allow that argument. Right? If we want to come in and say, I never tried to follow God's rules. Why am I getting the curse? The reality is is the Bible is going to argue that we are all aware of, uh, of God's law in our hearts. Let me put it to you this way. If I were to come up to you and I were to uh, steal a device from Harry Potter land. Sorry, I don't know any other place to go get this. Uh, Harry Potter land. Sorry, I'll be Harry Potter fans like, what are you talking about? Um, Hogwarts, there, you happy? Uh, I'm going to go find something magical from there. It's a device. And I'm going to put it on you. And for six weeks, it's going to record all your interactions with people. It's going to record all the times you have alone. It's going to record all your thoughts. It's going to record all your desires. It's going to record all of your heart. I don't know if something like that exists in the Harry Potter world, but I made it up. Um, So I'm going to put this advice on you. And I'm going to say for six weeks, it's going to record all that. At the end of six weeks, we'll pull this out and put it all out on the table and we'll take a look at it. But here's the deal. We're not going to measure how you did based on what the Bible says is right or wrong. We're going to examine what you did based on what you think is right and wrong. Let me ask this question. Do you think you'd be able to live up to even your own standards? Do you think you'd be able to even live up to what you consider right and wrong? Would any of us hold up under that kind of scrutiny? I don't think any of us would. In fact, I don't think any of us would want to actually take a look at that for fear of shame of how we did. I know I'd be crushed. I think even the most moral relativist person would not survive under that kind of scrutiny. We're all guilty. We're condemned and we're cursed and we live in shame because we cannot follow the law. And just so we're clear... Paul says in verse 12 of Galatians chapter 3 that the law is not of faith. What does he mean by that? What he means is that Paul isn't just after legalism. Legalism is this idea of, hey, here's some non-biblical extra rules that you need to follow that will help you live the Christian life. Paul's not after legalism. Paul is after this idea that you could follow the law in the first place. Paul's saying you can't follow the law. The Bible teaches this. You cannot follow God's laws. You don't have what it takes. So what do we do with this? This is a real problem because if God said to Abraham, hey, it's through you that I'm going to create this great nation and this great nation of your descendants is going to get my law 
and they are going to live this out. And through following the law, they are going to reveal to the world who I am and that I want a relationship with him. If the descendants of Abraham failed in that, then did God fail in his promise? Did God mess up here in picking Abraham? No, because there is one who did follow the law. There is one who took on the curse that we deserve for disobeying the law. There is a descendant of Abraham who secured the entire blessing of Abraham. He secured everything. He secured uh, the land that was to come. He secured that the whole world would be blessed. He would secure that we could come to know God, that we could be accepted by him, that we could have his presence dwell within us through the Holy Spirit. This descendant's name is Jesus. The entire Old Testament points to this. Guys, we don't just believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is our Redeemer who not only takes the curse of the law for us because of our attempts to obey the law, but that he actually gives us the blessing of Abraham so that through his spirit we actually can follow the law. We can follow the law through his power. That leads me to Paul's last point. Jesus becomes the curse so that we get the blessing. Jesus becomes the curse so that we get the blessing. In verses 13 through 14, it says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law that by becoming a curse for us or by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, in the Old Testament, if you disobeyed certain laws, there was a capital punishment in the nation of Israel. And this capital punishment was stoning. But after you were stoned, your body was taken and put up on a pole or on a tree. And it revealed to everyone who walked by the body that this person was cursed. It worked as sort of a public shaming. It's not that this person was cursed by being put on the tree. It's that this person was already cursed. And that by putting him on the tree, you're revealing that to anyone who walks by. So it's not just that they're cursed, there's also a public humiliation or shame on that person. Guys, because every one of us in this room did not follow God's law, we couldn't even live up to the standards of our own laws because we're all in that boat, we're all under a curse. And more than that, we're destined to one day be publicly humiliated for our sin. But Jesus enters into this story. Jesus enters into this story and he does away with our curse by becoming a curse for us. Why? So that we could get the blessing of Abraham. There's a Christmas song that we sing every year that captures this wonderfully. It's called Joy to the World. And one of the verses goes like this. No more will sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He'll come and make the blessings flow far as the curse is found. Guys, Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He makes the greatest exchange in the history of the human race, in the history of the world. Jesus comes to you and he says, I will take your sin-scarred, your tattered record. In all of your attempts to obey the law, you've occurred nothing but wickedness and all the curses of hell. And I will take that upon myself. And I will give you my spotless, perfect record of righteousness that has procured all the blessings of heaven. I will give that to you. If you have not received that exchange here tonight, I plead with you to receive that exchange. If your heart has grown cold to that, 
that. I pray and I offer to you that the Holy Spirit's power would woo your heart back to that. And I say that this exchange it remains at the door. That when you leave here, you can live a life based on that and that alone. This exchange is the greatest news you've ever heard. The question is, is have you believed it? Do you continue to believe it? Over and over and over and over again. Do you call out to God to help you when you struggle to believe that it is enough? You become a Christian by faith and you continue to live the Christian by faith. That's what it means to be in a relationship with God. And that's how you grow in a relationship with God. It's what the Bible has always taught from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I want to conclude this way. Because the church in Galatia, they didn't have a problem necessarily believing that Jesus was the Savior who could save them from their sins. What they had a problem believing was that Jesus was the one who could make them holy. They had a problem believing that the power of spirit, or the spirit of the power of the spirit was enough to make them look more and more like Jesus. Guys, somehow I don't think that we're immune to that same problem in the church today. I think often we are easy to say, yeah, Jesus died to forgive me from our sins. But then if, when we take a look at our own lives, we doubt the Spirit's power to actually make us holy. Can we just be honest? I know I struggle with this area. The Christian life begins by faith, and yet we get hung up on continuing the Christian life by faith. And I think one of the biggest reasons we get hung up on continuing the Christian life by faith is because of the shame that we're still carrying around. We believe that Jesus Christ died to remove the curse, but we didn't leave the shame at the cross. We took it with us, and we've been carrying it around. Some of us have believed that Jesus forgave us of our sins, but we carry around the shame of our sins, and it's choking the life out of our faith. Some of us are haunted by our past mistakes. The hurtful words that maybe we said to a friend that we wish we could take back. Maybe the self-righteousness that we had where we manipulated God and tried to get him to do what we want. Maybe it was the manipulation that we had with other people to get them to do what we wanted. Maybe it was a quest for self or for the approval of other people and letting that be an idol in our lives. Maybe it was the the shame of feeling like I am never going to measure up and we reject the grace of God. Maybe it's the shame of saying, hey, I wasn't going to go that far sexually and now I've lost my virginity. Maybe it was the shame of saying, hey, this was the last time I was going to get drunk and then, oops, I did it again. Maybe it was the shame of the actions committed last night in the dark that no one knows about. Maybe it was the, the, the shame of spouting off theology and Bible verses to make myself seem superior. You fill in the blank for yourself, but here's the thing. What I just listed off to you is not generic sin for me. Those are things that are part of my past. Those are things that are part of my record. Those are things that haunt me. And that's the shame that I carry around. And I have to scrape And I have to claw and I have to strive to come to the cross and believe that Jesus, when he looks at me and says, John, that's not your record anymore. That's not your record anymore. I've given you my record. I took 
the curse on this tree. You're no longer cursed, you're blessed. Why are you carrying this shame around? For you here tonight, what shame are you carrying around? Bring it to Jesus. Believe that he is enough to not only save you from the curse of your sin, but that he is powerful enough to rid you of the shame that you're carrying. Jesus took the curse and your shame so that you could be blessed. May we be a people that fight 